Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. And um, I'm up here with Tim. Tim uh, from San Antonio. I'm a grateful sexaholic. Hi, Tim. The name of this meeting is Overcoming Shame. Please take a moment to silence all electronic devices. If you need to use yours during this meeting, please take it outside. We ask that you not make any personal recording of this or any meeting. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. In the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being recorded. If you are not sure your share will be appropriate or on topic, please participate by listening. The recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone so the listener can follow you. If you wish not to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment. Um, the the format for this meeting is a Q&A uh, uh, meeting. And it says in our uh, page six of our notebook here, initial shares by meeting leaders, followed by ample time for questions. Questions will be addressed by the leaders for the sake of time and out of respect for the other attendees, the person asking the question should avoid extended background information about his question. Just ask the question. Um, okay. And um, so, uh, Tim, you want to start start us off here? Yes. I, my name is Tim. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. I am sick getting well, not bad trying to get good. I've been sexually sober with God's help since 9, 10, 15 and um, as I look at my uh, my life history, which I'm not going to tell every bit of, I promise, um, I've probably been a sexaholic since I was born. Um, certainly that found evidence that I came by it very honestly. Um, and it's likely that um, even as a young child, I was experiencing shame. Um, I remember... Um, just as a very young child, um, I did some uh, something at the dinner table, dumped over my glass of milk or whatever it might have been, and I was uh, sent to my room. And um, all I can remember is that I was lying on the bed, sucking my thumb with my hand between my legs and just feeling like I was worth nothing. Um, and... Um, I guess for me, it's important to see, to try to close in on what shame is. Um, guilt is because I did something wrong. 
Shame is about I am a bad person. That's that's a con, uh, a distinction that makes some sense to me. Um, and I do think I was I was set up for shame uh, before I was born. My parents did the very best they could. Um, I was born 13 months after the sudden death of my two-month-old brother. Um, and my mom is very clear about the fact that the fact that I was growing in her womb is what rescued her from a hopeless depression. So I was special, quote-unquote, from early on. In fact, part of me takes offense at this that says standard. <laughs> it should say special. Um, and um, and it, though I couldn't have articulated this at the time, um, I, in some fashion, became responsible for her happiness from early on. Um, and I came to feel that there was something wrong with me. Um, this often was was an underlying nothing I could articulate, um, but growing up, I was very often on the outside. My father served in the military, and we moved around a lot and and um, and I was not fitting in, not finding a place in in classroom or or schoolyard uh, settings where kids already knew each other. My two uh, surviving brothers are th three and four years older than me. I was always the little brother trying to catch up. Um, and um, it, it, as, my, uh, as my life went on and, um, and lust came in during my uh, early teenage years, I think shame and lust and fear came to be woven together in me. Um, and um, like a this cord through my insides. Um, and I believe shame was and is the strongest of those, those three. Um, I was a good student in high school and college, but never quite feeling like I was good enough. Um, and um, as I as I came through high school and college, shame and lust uh, grew together fairly rapidly. Um, the more so after uh, I, in my twenties, uh, became a, a pastor of a church. Um, I was fairly soon after I became a pastor, within a year and a half or so. Um, I got into a situation where uh, my uh, the pastor that oversaw me uh, suggested that I go for treatment for a week to find out what was going on with me, um, and it was in that setting uh, in 1987 that I was first labeled a sex addict, and that seemed to fit for me. Um, but there was nothing that I, I could not find any mechanism to do anything about that. Um, and being being a lust addict and a shame addict and a pastor who was supposed to be holy and connected with God and have all the answers um, made 
made for a very difficult inner life. There was a, a strong sense, I, would, I said there was, still is, a very strong sense that I must get it right, that I've got to know how things work, that I've got to know the right answers. And that is wonderful, um, wonderful turf for a hidden life to grow in. Um, and so um, if that grew with porn and masturbation. And finally, my therapist in 2011 said, you're stuck and you need to go to SA. Um, and uh, I found hope and relief, but for quite a long time struggled to stay sober. And um, finally, and along that way, I worked at the steps off and on with four really great, very patient sponsors, not all at once, but in succession. Um, and I really got serious about the steps uh, a little over a year ago. That didn't make shame go away. Um, and to be very honest, um, the shame has been pretty strong in recent months. Um, and my... Uh, my willingness and my ability to actually work on the steps and uh, not my ability, my willingness to do that has uh, has waned a good bit. So I have much more experience and hope than actual strength in this regard at this point. Um, but um, but I do believe there is uh, there is hope for a measure of freedom from this shame through this program. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Steve. Uh, gratefully sober since August the 5th of 2001. And as uh, my sponsor likes to say for that, I can never be sufficiently grateful. Um, on the topic of overcoming shame, first off, the title itself reminds me that for most of life, my life, shame was the thing that overcame me. And um, just like I don't have power uh, to not pick up a lust drink, um, I don't. I don't have power over shame. I have no power against shame. Um, as far as I can remember today, shame began. Uh, infecting me in a very toxic sense when I was about six years old and I started having deviant sexual thoughts. I don't know why, but w when I was six, I began uh, to notice uh, what I now know is called sexual arousal when I would look at or think about certain other children's feet. Um, I remember making a list uh, writing down the names of uh, children whose feet I wanted to see, and I wrote at the top of the list, people whose feet I want to see. I kept that list. That was my first porn stash. I haven't heard anybody else that had a porn stash quite like that. So I can feel different and and defective even in here <laughs> um, uh, if, if, if I let my shame get a hold of me. 
I kept that list in my backpack. I was in first grade. Um, one day, and I would take it out sometimes and look at it. I would lay in bed at night. I remember laying in bed at night thinking about certain other children's feet and feeling that warmth in my genitals, not knowing what it was, not understanding it, just knowing that it felt good. I hadn't yet developed a sense of shame about it, but one day I went to look for my list, and it wasn't there. And I realized that I had left it out. And the last time I had looked at it was in a certain room in the house. I went to that room in our house, and my older sister had found it and was looking at it right at that moment that I walked in. And she knew it was mine. She, it was my handwriting, and and she was she was like nine years old. And she looked at me with this expression on her face and said, "People whose feet I want to see." I I grabbed it away from her and I walked out of the room, and I. It's kind of fuzzy. I, I I I don't remember. I must have flushed it down the toilet. I must have done something with it to make sure that no one could ever see it. I came back moments later, and she was talking to my mother. My mother had come into the room, and she was telling my... Steve has this list of people whose feet he wants to see. And my mom looked at me and said, Steve, what is this she's talking about? And I looked at her, and I just walked right out of the room without saying a word. Now, she made no further issue of it, and neither uh, she nor my sister remember that incident. But I never forgot it. And it was the beginning of a turning into a secret life and to a secret fear and a belief that if anybody ever found out about my sexual thoughts and feelings that I couldn't be okay. I couldn't uh, sit at the table. I couldn't be fed. I couldn't be clothed. I couldn't get the things that I needed to live. I would be an outcast. This sense of fear grew as I listened with this, this secret and I heard people, coaches, teachers, pastors, respected members of society, law enforcement officials, judges, mothers and fathers talk with scorn, derision, and contempt for people with sexual problems. And I learned quotes around that in my own head from with my, <laughs> my own best thinking, listening to this and staying silent. I learned what sick people like me deserve. And I kept that inside, and that just was a very, very powerful compartment in which my disease could grow and my shame could grow. I have been so afraid all my life, and I have stayed alone with that shame and believed that that, sh that shame became a part of me, as, not in truth, not in my true self but with the only self that I could imagine. And, and, and one of my sponsors taught me just how toxic that is. Not everyone has, I think maybe a few people, I don't know what the percentages are, you know, uh, maybe it's 1% or less, people have that exact particular uh, pathology with their sexuality or whatever. 
but people people's experience with shame and fear is very common. And I had an AA sponsor who taught me from his own story, sharing his own experience, the act cannot participate in real fellowship. And when I was living in that shame and that fear and behind that secret, there was no way that I could receive love. There were a lot of people in my life who have loved me very deeply. It it was no fault of their own that I was holding something between their love and my own heart. This secret, the way my old teacher put it, he said, the act can't participate in real fellowship. I was holding out something there that I thought you needed me to be. You know, I was hiding what I knew was really going on with me. I I didn't believe the love that, that I was receiving. I believed if you knew the real me, all that would change. You were loving the fake me. And that, that belief grew. The more this, this separation inside myself, our literature describes it so well, lost uh, inside ourselves, you know, away from love, um, away from life, lost inside ourselves, that inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Even in my peculiar less than 1% pathology, I was experiencing the problem that we all have identified with in this fellowship. And that shame really overcame me. About 30 years after I first started having sexual thoughts, I reached a point, I was 36 years old, it was 2000, early 2001, I was ready to die. I had felt like dying many times, I'd wondered what it would be like, I had kind of toyed with the idea of suicide, but something was different now. For the first time in my life, within the past 12 months before that time, I had crossed a line that I could no longer deny. There was somebody else who knew. Everything else I did between, I mean, I did things that I am very ashamed. I sucked the toes of a friend while he was sleeping in when I was in my college age. I was very ashamed of it. I was ashamed. There was some strange arousal that I felt. It was horrifying at the same time. I couldn't stop. I've read uh, accounts of rape victims describing what the rape experience was like. Many of my perverse sexual acts, I felt very much the same way that the rape victims described, except I wasn't a victim. I was doing the act, and yet it was my disease was somehow traumatizing me and it was a horrible, horrible thing. And so this just increased my shame. And, and I had no release for it other than the temporary release of my addiction and my other drugs. In 2001, I, I had crossed a line and my fear of discovery and of the consequences was no longer being adequately medicated by any of my addictions. And the torment of being alive was just becoming too unbearable. I I was as close to suicide as I've ever yet become in my life. I didn't own a gun, thank God, but I was very close to trying to acquire one or, or getting some other means. At the time, 
I was acquiring, I had just acquired a, a license to practice medicine. There was a lot of ways I knew how to kill myself. I've evaluated a lot of patients in the emergency room who have botched a suicide attempt. And I've sponsored an emergency room physician who had our disease and successfully committed suicide, if you want to call it successful. Um, I, could have, I could have ended my own life, but while I was contemplating this in February 2001, I heard my own voice say, Steve, you know, if you, if you, if you tell anybody what you've done, that's like committing suicide. But then my own voice responded, yeah, but if you tell, you know, if you tell and ask for help and things get worse, you can still put a bullet in your brain. And so I began to get honest. I didn't get honest right away. I began to talk about the crimes that I had committed in my disease. And about six months later, it was a very, very um, tumultuous year. Um, I was in a treatment center in Arizona in 2001, just a few weeks before 9-11. And I told the, the worst of my secrets. And I had to be reported to the authorities um, because I had harmed children in my sexual criminal behavior. I was eventually... Uh, uh, prosecuted only for a part of, of my reported behavior um, by God's grace. I was convicted of statutory rape in 2002. I lost my medical license. I lost my marriage. Um, my life, as we think of it in earthly, you know, cultural terms, was totally destroyed. Um, it was hard for me. I needed a lot of help from you and from God to separate the fact that it was not my disclosures and my honesty, quote-unquote, that had um, created these consequences. It was my disease and my dishonesty and my own choices for which, unfortunately, I was responsible. And more than anything with reference to this topic of overcoming shame, I had nothing more to hold back the floodgates from the shame that had been building up inside of me for decades. And no way to face it successfully. I mean, the only thing I'd ever known to face it with was the numbness that I got from the medicating effects of lust or other drugs. I couldn't do that anymore. Well, I could. <laughs> I could have chosen to keep doing that. And I'm glad I found the power to not do it one day at a time in here. Overcoming shame for me began with sobriety in this fellowship. I could not get free of shame while I was still creating shame with my behavior. And and I don't believe... May, you know, may, in some hypothetical sense, maybe it would have been possible for me to keep masturbating or looking at porn or having fantasies and not doing criminal behaviors. Hypothetically. Now, if I'm powerless, I know that, 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 that's a crazy hypothesis. But even so, I don't think I ever could have been free. Whenever I act out in my disease, 
I have a deep sense that I'm betraying who God wants me to be. And that's another important facet of, of overcoming shame for me. The man who took me through the, the big book taught me when we did the fourth step, and I looked more honestly and more completely at myself than I've ever I'd ever done previously. And that was not pretty. That was painful. I had all kinds of urges to try to change the way I described it. I didn't want to say I sexually abused children, period. I wanted to say I had an affair with a young man. I wanted to make sure you knew that I didn't hold him down and and terrify him and rape him like some horrible person, but that I was nice and kind and was trying to make him feel good and that I loved him, blah, blah, blah. A lot of BS. It was designed to protect me from my own shame. And it wasn't until I learned, I had a therapist tell me one time, I talked about giving him oral sex. And he said, it sounds like you're doing him a favor. This is a very loving, kind person, least shaming person I've ever met. He said this to me. He said, I want you to try using different language. I want you to say I orally raped him. And my head exploded when he said that. I didn't I didn't act out, I acted in. I just kind of imploded. I clammed up and but I was sober at that point about eight months and I was working a program. I had a sponsor, I had meetings, I had people to call. And something inside me by that point knew he was right. And when I stopped trying to defend my behavior, I began to get free. Mercy is for the guilty. If I'm innocent, there's no mercy available. Mercy's not needed. And if I plead guilty in a criminal court of law, there's no trial. If I only get a trial, I only get a chance to plead my case if I plead not guilty. And then mercy is not available. I couldn't get mercy until I stopped defending my behavior. Now, as soon as I stopped defending my behavior, that was one of my, my rationalizations, was one of my defenses from the shame, except it really wasn't a defense from the shame. It was a defense from my awareness of the shame. If I give some BS excuse for my behavior, that doesn't take away my shame. It might just, it just pushes it out of my awareness. I had to become aware of the shame I had created. I had to feel it. I had to experience it before I could get free of it. I had to accept that it was mine. There's a lot of toxic shame I inherited from abusive treatment from other people or things that I took on from society, from other people's attitudes. That I learned to let go. It's not real. It's not true. The things that I did, the harm that I did, I have to own that or I will never be free. The most beautiful thing I heard from this man who took me through the fourth step He told me, when I wrote down those things and I looked at all the stuff that I had done, he told me, that's not who you really are. If it's who you really are, it wouldn't have been killing you inside to do it. Nothing dies. 
by acting according to its nature. If I'm a monster and I'm acting like a monster, I'm just fulfilling my nature. The tragedy is that I'm a human being acting like a monster. I'm betraying my own humanity. And that's the source of my shame. When I stop acting like a monster and I learn to be who God created me to be, I begin to get closer to Him. And when all that BS gets out of the way, all that defense and rationalization, all that shame that I have, He, he takes it. He takes it if I let go of it. If I start trying to manage it on my own, on my own terms, with my own ideas and my behaviors, and that closeness to Him gives me the power to face that shame that I created. So I, I haven't overcome shame. God has overcome shame. He's overcome it with a vengeance. And all I have to do to get into that freedom is get myself out of the way and walk into the open door that He's put in front of me into that freedom. Um, the steps show me how to do this. I'm very grateful for the instructions in the steps for finding the willingness to follow them and finding the teachers here who have walked me through those instructions and have shown me and continue to show me how to live it today. I don't know what your shame is and I don't know where you are in your journey of letting God overcome it. But I do I do see the same victory in your stories that that I've experienced in mine. It's his victory. And um the ability to see that and to know it and experiencing it is real has changed me and continues to change me and it's what keeps me coming back. I'm very grateful for SA. I'm grateful for you and the topic and I'm and I'm done sharing. Thank you. We've got um I think we're scheduled to go until uh six fifteen, so we got almost an hour left. Um, this is a question and answer session, which means that um, Tim and I are supposed to take questions and then and then answer them. Um, so let's begin that and see how many questions we have. We have enough questions and answers to fill up that time. We can we can do it. If we run out of questions, then we could take a group conscience and see what to do with that. Um, um, so. Um, any questions? And there is a mic. Uh, is there a mic for questions? There has been a mic for questions. Okay, so there's a stand. Um, yeah, is that one on? Okay, yeah, either one. Preston, thank you. He's got it. And if you've got questions, please, um, um, just if you'll come to the front and kind of sit in these uh, and we can 
take them in order. Anyone? Well, I'll go ahead. <laughs> I'm Preston from Nashville. Hi, Preston. Uh, one of the questions, or one of the things that uh, my sponsor encourages me to do a lot is, is written work around all kinds of things. Just anything I call him about. You know, what's the fear? What's the shame? What's the? Uh, have you? What's your guys' experience with writing, uh, writing out your shame, or, or the written work around any of that? So, uh, anyways, with that, I'll... thank you, President. Um, that hasn't been something that's consistently been asked of me, but when it has, that has been fruitful, especially if it's not just something I write out for myself, because I can kind of, I can make up all sorts of stuff, um, but if I'm accountable to somebody else and we're doing something with that, then that, that actually does prove helpful to me. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Yeah, my experience is very similar to Tim's. In fact, in the first few years of my sobriety in Nashville, I was in a therapy group where we had a lot of writing assignments, and um, they were very helpful. <clears throat> Some of the 12-step uh, people that I have encountered have had <clears throat> negative experiences with therapy. Um, and, and therapy is an outside issue, okay? I want to make very clear that uh, SA as a fellowship has no experience, no, no opinion, positive, in favor of or against therapy. Um, my experience, my personal recovery, I, I believe for me, if I have told the truth, followed directions, stayed sober, and spoken with someone who's qualified to treat my illness, that I've gotten very good results. I've done it both ways, before recovery and after recovery. Um, I do believe I can feed a resentment by dwelling on it. I do believe I can feed shame by dwelling on it. And I think, for me, what Tim has shared about this, um, uh, maybe, maybe accountability is a good word, um, uh, in the process, is that, that someone else can help me, prevent me from going into that destructive mode of dwelling on it and, and, and make sure that, that the writing is a constructive thing. Um, but um, many people have uh, gotten free without that, and, um, and so I think it's very individual. Um, uh, I try to accept other people's experience as it is, and, and, and try to do the same with my own. And, and God, God will show, show me the truth in there somewhere if I'm really got my ears open. Thanks. Hi, my name is also Tim. I'm a recovering sexaholic from Dallas. Um, I, I like the comment about mercy is for the guilty. And I guess by all of us, being here, we're admitting to being guilty of something. Um, it's fairly personal, but I've given a good deal of thought to what I want to be on my own gravestone, and I, this may change over time. I may not get it done, and may be left to my children to put something. But 
What I'm thinking now it comes from Psalm 103, verse 17. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Period. Thank you for this session. Thank you. Anyone else? Hello, my name is Bob Bell. I'm a sexaholic. Hello, Bob. I know I dealt with a, a cycle of shame, and uh, I did quite a bit of reading about it. I, too, went through some six months of therapy. But in the reading, it finally got me to realize to put the shame, the guilt, on the behavior and not bring that into my daily life. Uh, another big part of me was the anxiety of shame of people finding out. Uh, so that was in the future. I didn't have any control of that. Uh, again, realizing that I don't need to bring that into my day in order to have a somewhat happy day. But I uh, would like to learn a little bit more of maybe how you were able to let other people's attitude towards sex offend, offending, uh, you know, how do you let that go? You know, it still haunts me. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. Do you have any experience to speak to that from Tim? Nothing that comes to mind right away. Okay. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Thanks for the question, Robert. Um, as I understand it, the question is about um, how to deal with the effects of other people's attitudes, uh, attitudes towards uh, sexual uh, offending behavior. Um, certainly, other people's attitudes have been a big trigger for my shame. And um, so the question is really right, right on target for me for for the topic about overcoming shame. Um, I have found in my experience, and I cannot recommend to anyone. <laughs> my experience simply does not make make uh, me an expert on anything other than on my own experience and my current interpretation of it, which could change. Um, but today, my experience was I was compulsively opaque for 30 years, and it nearly killed me. Once I told my secrets, I entered a period of my life where I was compulsively transparent. And in fact, I think sometimes I crossed the line, even in SA meetings, I shared more than was appropriate, and it made people uncomfortable. Um, but it was the best I could do. It's like I had kept that thing sucker so tight, that, and it was so highly pressured that once it opened up just a little bit, it just had to blow. And I told everyone that I encountered more than casually, you know, for, for many years, I didn't have any relationships outside of my immediate family and recovery. And 
And I was like a child crying for help. And and this was my one of my big things is, that, you know, I'm a sex offender and I don't know how to live. And 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 many of you could tell that I hated myself. Um, and many of you, for various reasons, reached out to me and made it clear to me what someone just shared, that my shame is not in who I am. It's in the behavior. And I don't have to repeat that behavior today. I can learn a new way of living today. So I am amazed that in this transparency that began in these rooms, but has continued into many walks of my life, how much love I've received even when people learn about my past. I'm blown away by it. And it, it has made such a liar out of my disease and out of that voice that told me no one would ever love me if they learned the truth. The moment I opened my mouth in a group in that treatment center in Arizona, in front of a group, I immediately spiraled down into a mass of shame and self-pity. My eyes were closed. My head was bowed. A puddle of snot and tears formed at my feet. And I could not breathe. And the therapist knew just what to do. There were six, other, six or seven other sex addicts in that room with me. He told me he was very angry about my behavior, but that was not, it was harmful and inappropriate, but I was not my behavior. And he invited me to raise my eyes and look around the room and look into the eyes of each person in that room without any words being exchanged. And I did what he asked, and then he asked me, what did I see? And I saw love. And that makes no sense to me. And I think part of me tried to reject it and, and say, but, but, and he stopped me. And he said, Steve, don't block it. You need this love. This love needs to reach you. This is what you really need. You need to know that this is who you are. So that transparency, experiences like that, I disclosed in meetings. I disclosed to every sponsor. Every time I went on a job application, if they didn't know, I was terrified that somebody would find out anyway. I was on a sex offender registry. If you Googled my name, the first thing that popped up was a mugshot of me with a description of my offenses. I was terrified somebody was going to find out anyway. It was almost a sense of me acting out in control that I was going to tell you before you found it out so I could maybe have some control or over how you reacted to it. But I, I didn't totally, it wasn't, I mean, I, I, I really did follow some instructions too. I would ask and, and people, but you all, the teachers that came to me supported me in being transparent. I, I got into graduate school in 2007. Uh, without an interview, just by sending in my transcripts from medical school and college and, and, and my test scores, etc. They thought I was still practicing medicine when they sent me an email accepting me in the program, offering me support, you know, financial support. 
I went to an interview uh, a little while later, a few months later, with letters from my therapist, from my sponsor, from my psychiatrist. Um, and and I said, you don't know this about me, but I, I, I've, my medical license has been revoked. I'm a registered sex offender. And if you if you don't want me in your graduate program, I won't kick. I've got four letters here testifying to the fact that I'm living a different life today than I was when this happened six six years ago. And the man looked at me and he said, "We want you in our program." And um, and so. That radical transparency has worked for me. I don't know if it would work for you. Um, I still was very sensitive when I, every time I had to go down every year and report my my update my information for the sex offender registry and the and the police in that office they don't care they don't they don't know or even, they wouldn't even believe if somebody told them that I was in some kind of recovery program. They just see another offender. They see offenders all day long, and when offenders who are on the registry act up, they got to go do something about it. So I would get triggered into shame and fear and, and trauma every time I'd go to register. I'd have to pray. I'd have to call and make bookends and so forth. And it got better over the years. It never completely went away. Um, I got off the registry uh, almost three years ago, and I've been able to be employed in ways that I couldn't before that, and it's been amazing. And there's some fear that's left me because of that change in situation, but I'm still sensitive. I'm aware that it could happen. There could be some kind of way. It's less likely. Now, if you Google my name, it's it's, it's hard to find unless you're looking for it. Um, do, do I deserve a life this good? I can't, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I can't answer that question. I'm grateful God has given it to me. Um, I've gone on quite a bit. Um, <laughs> Um, and and I'm going to hush now, but um, did, did I at least come close to answering any part of the question? <laughs> Thank you. We've got another 35 or 40 minutes. Hi there. Um, my name is Tom, sexaholic from Hermosa Beach, California. And kind of wanted to follow up on what you were talking about, that the shame overwhelmed you, and I can tell by what you were saying that it just was uh, palpable almost, and that somehow you began to believe that the love that others were displaying towards you um, was genuine. Um but I always have the other voices, like my ex-wife, who <laughs> doesn't genuinely love me. And how do you how do you make progress? With does that make sense? I, I'm sure it isn't something that happens overnight. But somehow you you you're able to accept the genuine love, you know. Because I, I tell myself, well, I'm not worth it, you know, because all these other people hate me, and they hate me for good reason. That, that's what I, that's my question. Thank you, Tom. I'm Tim, sexaholic. Um, and progress for me has come through uh, progress on that shame 
has come significantly through the fellowship where I have told everything and nobody has run out screaming. There are folks that get it and many, in many cases, if they haven't done it, they've thunk it. And they have found that mercy themselves. Um, and um, for many years, it was very, very difficult for me not to compulsively disclose to my wife things that would have harmed her deeply. Um, the fellowship has helped me um, to uh, to put that in a place where it can be appropriately received, um, and uh, and where the that um, there's a group of folks who understand about the disease and and about its consequences and are able to offer mercy. Thanks. Steve Sexaholic. Um, that voice in my head is never going to shut up, I don't think, that tells me you don't deserve it, it's not real. God doesn't really love you. And I've got to keep making the choice to focus on the other voice, the voice that I hear from you. Um, ultimately, it doesn't even really matter if the people in that room were genuinely loving me or not. I mean, maybe their love cripples like me. Maybe they really can't love another person genuinely. But God and His love is real, whether I know that or not. And when I focus my attention and my need for His love um, in, in that situation, it opened up something inside of me and His love flowed into me through the people in that room. And I believe God, as I understand Him, if my understanding is anywhere close to being right, that love is available for any of us. And it's a choice. I, I can't choose to overcome the shame on my own power. I can't choose not to lust, but I can choose what to focus my attention on. If I focus my attention on the sound of His voice, whatever I think it is, then it'll get me a little closer to Him, a little closer to Him. And the closer I, I, I get to Him, the closer I am to real love. Hi guys, I'm Jesse. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I was taught and I teach to my sponsees the the addict lives in the shame that tells me you might as well stay in the addiction because there's no getting out. And besides that, I'm the solution to that terrible feeling. In recovery, I've, I've learned to stay clear of that. So the question I have is about in my relationship with my wife, sometimes she wants to go back there because of her memories of the the terrible things I did 
to hurt her and the family and all of that. And if I'm not shameful, well, then she's still thinking, well, you can't be over it because I still remember it. And sometimes I don't know quite where to go with that. Is that a question? I think so. <laughs> I think so. All right. So coming, you know, come into the present day. How do I? Uh, how do I respond to people who say, "Well, you can't be so happy-go-lucky because." Because of what you've done, you know, you're still you're you can't just step away like that. Yeah. Thanks, Jesse. You want to go second? Mm -hmm. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Um, Something comes to mind is something that therapist said to me in that moment was the words victim empathy. He prayed, he prayed for me to have victim empathy. He wanted me to have freedom from my own shame, but he also wanted me to learn and discover. From a, and I thought I had victim empathy, but what I had was a sense of fear and terror and self-hatred because of what they thought of me. And... Um, so this this idea of empathy for me has been um, something that's been part of my growth, very important, and I've and I've been helped by sponsees. I can I can hear it sometimes. It's one thing for me to be at peace in God's mercy and forgiveness. It's another thing for me to act as if, well, I'm over it. Why aren't you over it? I had a sponsor years ago call me up and he was feeling a lot of pain because his wife was kept bringing things up out of the past that he had done and kept throwing it in his face and it was hurting him and he was you know feeling all kinds of feelings but at that particular moment he was feeling resentful and he was said you know when is she going to get over it? And I love sponsorship because I've been I've received a lot of great things in sponsorship. And many of the times I pass them on as I receive them. Other times I might forget them and then think of them again and think I made it up, whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but sometimes I hear things come out of my mouth and I'm like, I didn't say that. That was God talking. And so this man said to me, when is she going to get over it? And I just immediately heard my own mouth open and say, when are you going to get over the fact that she's not over it? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough to come up with something like that. <clears throat> the, the, um, <clears throat> the reality for me is I've hurt people. There's consequences to my actions. I may stop feeling the pain and the shame, but their journey with healing is a different thing. And it's not about me. It's really, I mean, if somebody's in pain and I caused it, 
Heck, if you hurt me, I mean, and when I say hurt me, it talks about the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real. You know, it doesn't have to be true that you actually transgressed. I can I can get it in my head that you hurt me because you're a police officer and you pulled me over for speeding. And you know who do you think you are? I said, well, you know my sponsor said that he was doing his job. He wasn't doing anything wrong. I, you don't have to do anything wrong for me to get a resentment against you. But if you do something wrong, what what if you really are? You're hanging on to it. You're you're taking on. Maybe you're angry at me. I didn't hurt you. I, I hurt somebody else, and you got hurt, and you're putting your your pain on me. Is that fair to me? Is that right? Well, blah blah blah. You know, maybe it really is wrong for you to think that way of me. The wrong it, it says that I've got to the the solution. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us. They, like ourselves, were sick too. And earlier this morning, I was sharing on step two about the importance of identification. <clears throat> step two is really important identification for me to believe that this can work. I got to see myself in you before I can believe that what you did might work for me. That's what step one of the things step two means for me, that identification. But this is also identification. And this is about getting free of hating others and hating myself. I stop taking what you do personally if I identify with your behavior and your sickness. Just because your sickness happens to be directed at me, well, I feel it differently than if you're doing that wrong thing to somebody else. But if I see myself in you, you, like me, are spiritually sick, I can get free. I can start to move into a world where we're both God's kids and our pain is caused by shutting ourselves off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And so this victim empathy thing came at me from a from a, a therapist, but this concept of identifying with another person in their pain and sickness and harmful behavior, even if it's harming me, that came out of the big book. That's on page 66 and 67 of the big book. What I hopefully quoted accurately a moment ago. You can check it and please let me know if I got it wrong because I, I, I can make stuff up. Um, the, the, um, the freedom, the, the solution is, is here, you know. It's not that, that, that somebody else is acting a certain way. It's that I'm taking it personally. Reaching for a bookmark that my sponsor gave me, and it says three words: "It's not them. She's not my problem. The probation, the the, the officer at the at the sex offender bureau is not my problem. My problem is that I've acted in such a way that I've got shame and guilt, and it's real easy for you for for it to get triggered by you not acting right, quote unquote. The problem's in me, and I just got to keep being reminded of that." The more I keep coming back and, and doing my best to learn uh, to, to learn how to do this today, the better it gets. Thanks. Tim, the sexaholic. Um, my, my the piece of my experience that seems to come to mind um, 
I'd mentioned earlier that that I struggled over many many years with the 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 impulse to um to confess to my wife some of the things that I'd done um which would would have been um me trying to get feeling better at her expense um and and that impulse was pretty much gone um in and it through an awful lot of people saying what kind of stupid are you that you would do that to her um but what happened almost 2 years ago um when i was uh 6 months to the day into my current period of sobriety was that through my own carelessness um my wife came across my written first step and read it um and um was devastated um there was much that she shouldn't have had to know um and the only thing i could do was to say yes i did those things i was wrong i'm responsible and i have no control over what you choose to do now and i had to i had to say that to myself over and over and over again i was the consummate i can make it better by saying something guy and there was nothing i could say except the truth i was wrong and you have a right to do what you choose to do and i got to sleep in the guest room for a while <laughs> and that was grace um and then several weeks down the track i didn't have to sleep in the guest room anymore that's grace that's she does with that what she chooses and the the program has no opinion one way or the other but therapy together made a whole lot of difference to us and still does but there was nothing i could i had no control no control at all um and i believe that the fact that i didn't try to fix it in the moment helped thanks thank you anyone else have a question i'm trisha and uh i've been trying to figure out the difference between guilt and shame and what i keep learning is that uh, guilt is i made a mistake i'm sorry what can i do to fix it and i see the steps as helping us do that but i see shame as i made a mistake i'm sorry i'm sorry i am a mistake that's who i am that makes me a victim and i understand that research has shown that there's a direct correlation between shame and addictions violence bullying 
If I am, that's an intransitive verb, that means that, that I've labeled myself that, and that feeds all of my addictions. I don't have just one. So what you're talking about, you're, talking, you're using the word shame, but I think you're talking about guilt. My behaviors, I am guilty of my behaviors. That is not who I am. When I say that I am, that's why I like to say I'm a recovering sexaholic rather than just a sexaholic, because that suggests I'm in the disease. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and in forgiveness, it seems to me it's a process, and that as the offender, I have no control over how long someone's forgiveness takes, if it's ever going to happen. One of the things that concerns me is I'm, I have moved to a new community in SA, and people share their therapists that are telling them to share their behaviors with their spouses pretty early in recovery. And where I came from, when that has happened, we've had a number of divorces. So that really concerns me about sharing details. Um, I, I agree with sharing our first step without a lot of detail with the group, because that really helps deal with the shame. I don't have to look at your shoes anymore. I can look in your eye. Uh, and recovery for me is is dealing with the shame. And I've had a lot of shame. I may not have done offending behaviors, but as a woman, you know, the standard for women is pretty high, and I think that's why we don't have very many women in SA. So I, I'm very concerned about how do I help women overcome the shame just to come into the room. It takes so much courage just to come into the room. And so the loving attitude of the men in the program is very important and very helpful to them. And I'm grateful to all the guys that have done that for me and for all the other women that have been. So I, I don't know what you comment at all. <laughs> Thank you, Tricia. Um, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Um, thanks for uh, saying that, Tricia. Um, uh, and I do want to be clear. When I spoke of shame before, I was spoke, speaking of the exact same thing that Tricia mentioned. I am a mistake. I am bad. There is something wrong with me. And, and I heard Tim say similar words. Guilt is about what I've done. Shame is about who I am. Now, I learned a, a thing about something uh, that was um, called a healthy shame. And, uh, you know, you can think what you want of that. But, but, but there, was, there was a way in which I could make sense of it. It was like being embarrassed. You know, if I, um, uh, you know, lose control of my bladder in public, I feel ashamed. I, I feel embarrassed. And, and, and that if this gets processed in, in, in a, in a healthy way, then I end up, it helps, it helps me, uh, recalibrate my, my sense of humanity. It helps me understand where I fit in and it helps me gain a sense of humility. Um, if it's healthy. Uh, and process in a healthy way. If I take it on in a toxic way, it becomes a, a part of who I am. But, but let me be clear, when I was using the word shame before, I was talking about it exactly the way Trisha defined it and exactly the way I heard Tim define it. That's exactly the way it was taught to me. So I do believe that when I act out in my disease, yes, there is, there is a, 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 it can be a guilt there if I'm harming another person with that behavior, but that action if I'm betraying my true nature, creates shame. It creates a sense of separation and toxic uh, identity, and, and that, that the the process is very uh, is very healing. So, 
So um, I think it's a very important point, and I appreciate uh, uh, the comments. Thanks, Tim, sexaholic. Um, likewise, thank you, Tricia. Um, when I first introduced myself and said, I'm Tim, I'm a sexaholic, I'm sick, getting well, not bad, trying to get good, the folks in, in the fellowship here are accustomed to me saying that, and that's because I need to hear me say that. Because my shame wants me to believe that I'm terminally bad, that I am a mistake. And I, the, the program has taught me that that's not true. And coming to that distinction and encouraging myself to take that to heart is what has um, what has enabled me to not have to defend myself when I make a mistake or when I actually do something wrong. I've become able to say. I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. I'm not taking any, I'm not trying to deflect that at all. I can be honest about the fact that I make mistakes and that I do things that harm people. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Okay. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.